Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show here on Creative Live, the Chase Jarvis Live Show. That's right. I'm your host, your guide, your friend, Chase. Welcome to my world. I am very happy to be in your ears today. You all know this show. This is where I sit down with amazing humans, many of the world's top creators and entrepreneurs, and I do everything I can to unpack their brains and help you live your dreams with your big brain. My guest today has received multiple Emmy nominations as an actor. He's a director. He's a best-selling author. He's the founder of Soul Pancake. He's an advisor to the Mona Foundation. He even started his own nonprofit that uses arts and literacy to empower adolescent girls in Haiti. You might know him as some guy named Dwight Schrute on a crazy little show called The Office, but we all know him as Mr. Rain Wilson. A legend in his own right. This show is so much fun. You're going to quickly understand not only is his reign super funny, but he is an amazingly intelligent, down to earth, heartfelt, earnest, and just all around great human being. It was so fun to cover a little bit of his backstory that I didn't know. First of all, he's uh, raised in Seattle, where I was, and our parents lived just like five miles apart. Um, so we, we did a little, uh, Hey, do you know, which was a, a kind of fun. Turns out we didn't actually know one another, but we also retraced, uh, some of his history, not just in Seattle, but with acting, for example, here's this, check this out. He never made more than $20,000 in a year for the first count it nine years. He was trying to make it as an actor to me. That was just a stunningly powerful statistic and such an awakening for all of us out there who are trying to make our way in the world, trying to pursue our passions, trying to make them into careers. Then Rain's story is just, an, it's an inspirational one. And he also talks a little tactically about how he actually did it, about what it felt like and what he did to keep his nose to the grindstone. We also cover some cool ground about parenting. I am just a funkle. I don't have kids of my own. So anytime I can talk to someone who has achieved as much as someone like Rain has and is now faced with the challenge of bringing a new human into the into this world and making them a good human. It was really inspirational and interesting to me, and I think it will be for anyone at home who is a parent. Talks about parenting from a place of privilege. Um, how, as a person who has achieved some success, you know, how does that lens apply to their youngins? The journey that he also really opened up in a way that I hadn't heard in, in any previous, I uh, guess, interviews with him, was his own personal spiritual journey, how religion and specifically the Baha'i faith played a really important role in him becoming the human that he is today. We also talk about where he gets inspiration from beyond acting and beyond his family life, things like museums, art, music. We talk about his uh, founding an amazing nonprofit called Lide, which in Creole or specifically in Haitian Creole means both idea and leader, uh, an amazing nonprofit that supports arts and literacy education for women and girls in rural Haiti. That is an incredibly inspirational uh, journey for him. And he shares a lot about that. We also talked about his childhood. Talk about science fiction nerd and fantasy books. He went deep comic books. We cover it all. You're going to love this episode. Rain really opens up. And of course, if you enjoyed the episode, give him a shout out on social. He's at Rain Wilson. He hilarious feeds. If you're not following him, please do. I get, I get a dose of laughter just thinking about it. 
But look out for a doozy of a show. It's coming at you. But before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, the most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world, all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Hey, man. Hello. How are you? I am well. Good old-fashioned handshake. How about it? Like It was like the 60s there yeah. for a second. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very nice to meet good you day, on this. Good day, sir. Yes. In this video podcast. Yes. Um, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having we, me. We have a... Well, I, I, I hate to state... Uh, I, the obvious is we talk before we get on the show, and I'm always saying, Yo, God, right before the cameras are rolling, we talked about a bunch of interesting stuff. That's gonna, we're going to take a, a nice arc the show okay, today. Okay. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but first let's start from the start. Yeah. Go way back to small Rain Wilson. Okay. What were your aspirations? Because I think we, we're very well aware of your success. You've had a lot of success personally, professionally. We talk about, we'll talk about your faith. We'll talk about a lot of things in the show. Sure. But young Rain Wilson, I don't know very many people who know a lot about young Rain Wilson. Take us back. Yeah. Well, um, so Young Rain Wilson, like going super young. Yeah. I talk about this in my book, The Bassoon King. <laughs> 99, 95, wait, no, no, 1995. <laughs> Something like, it's probably like 395 <laughs> in the remainder bin at this point. But, no, that's a good, um, great book. I talk about my, uh, I was, this is a true story. We have a family wall at home with like baby pictures and family pictures. I was the most hideous baby alive. So I'm gonna go way back. <laughs> To me, Baby. being an infant, okay, um, and I was a giant, bloated, white baby. It looked like a, a manatee took a shit. You know, it just was like a bald, pudgy, like uh, unformed alien pupa, pupae. What is? How do you say that? Pupa. 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 Is pupa. that it? I don't know what the plural pupa. of pupa is. But a e pupa yeah. pupae. Now watch your comment section is gonna fill up with people <laughs> saying actually it's pronounced. That's right. Um, so yeah, and um, 
Yeah, so you know, lots of lots of lots of good, lots of bad about growing up in Seattle, Washington. Yes, your hometown, our hometown. We are OGs. Yeah, go OG. Seventies uh, Seattle. Seventy one birthright. Uh, Sixty six. I remember being there in the first year of the Seahawks uh, in the Kingdom. Um, R.I.P. Yeah. Kingdom. Yeah, R.I.P. Well. Does anyone miss the kingdom? <laughs> really? Speaking of what giant a monstrosity. C- cement blob. There's <laughs> a parking garage with it a football was. field in it. It's terrible. Um, I was a nerdy kid growing up on the north side of, of, of Seattle, um, AKA the white side of Seattle. And um, uh, my dad was a strange dude in that his day job was managing a sewer construction company. And Whoa. his side gig was painting abstract oil paintings and writing science fiction books. Whoa. Yeah, it was very, very strange. I think it's amazing that your dad had a side hustle in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. How cool is that? Like, the side hustle is the thing, right? That's one of the reasons that Creative Live exists, to help people pursue their passion. That's that's right. He was the original, like, uh, side hustle, only instead of driving an Uber. No, he was. (laughs) um, Yeah, he would get home, uh, you know, Work was out at 5.30, yep. 25 minute drive to our house, 5.25, he'd come home, he would make himself a giant glass of V8 juice, and he'd put on an old flannel shirt covered in paint, and he'd get out his canvases, Wow! and he'd blast opera music, and he would just start painting giant abstract oil paintings. Wow. Or he would go in, and on his little manual typewriter, he'd be finishing up whatever kind of weird fantasy or science fiction novel he was writing. No, actual novels. He, he, yeah. Did he publish any of these books? He published one of them. It's called Tentacles of Dawn. It was a not a bestseller, to say the least. Uh, and on the cover was a man punching a giant bat uh, with a very buxom woman at his side. And um, this significant... Now, we'll have, you have to read the book yeah, to find out the significance. Yes, of the- they, on the cover it said um, the... They programmed him to save the world and propelled him into a nightmare future. <laughs> yeah. He's in the future and the sun has gone out and it's a dark earth and he's trying to save the world. This is before zombie apocalypse was even, not even on yeah, the radar, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I grew up with a lot of science fiction books. That was really, I had a lot of nerdy pursuits. So I played musical instruments, hence the bassoon king. I yep. played the bassoon. and. That's an unusual, how did you choose to play the bassoon? Or was that given to you because you had a bunch of them lying around the house? I did not have a bunch of bassoons <laughs> lying around the house, but I got co-opted by my, um, by my band teacher. They're like, we need a bassoon. Who would, who would, who what, would do it? What idiot <laughs> would sign up to play this god-awful, weird, adenoidal instrument? So I wanted to play the saxophone because the saxophones were so cool and they got to wear like sunglasses and like as they were playing riffs, they got to like do little Dance moves on tables, together. Like, yeah. like uh, Ron Burgundy does. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jazz flute. Um, oh, that's right. So he convinced me that the bassoon would be a good idea. And um, also he let the class know on the first day I signed up to play the bassoon that, um, remember this is the 70s, but he said, you know, the original name for the bassoon is the Fagotti. So he was like, everyone, Rain is playing the Fagotti. So that went over really well mm-hmm. in the 70s yes. uh, in a lily white, uh, kind of semi racist, homophobic high school in North Seattle. Um, and uh, yeah, so I got picked on a lot for that as well as my other character aspects. But 
Um, I was really into science fiction and stuff like that. And I guess, you know, people ask me, how'd you get started with acting yeah. and whatnot? And, yeah. you know, okay, you know what? There's a, there's a pretty terrific story if you yes. kind of take a worldview. This is, very, this is how the universe works in my mind. In my heart of hearts, Chase Jarvis, I just knew I wanted to be an actor. There wasn't anything special. When I would see actors on stage, I was like, I want to do that. When I would see funny guys on sitcoms and I watched Taxi or Cheers or Bob Newhart or any of those favorite shows from back in the day, I was like, I want to do that. I want to do what those guys are doing. Amazing that I actually got to live my dream. Yeah, yeah. But as I started pursuing acting as I got a little older, um, my dad was very weird about it. My dad was very supportive of me doing the arts always, but he was a little strange about it. Now, what you should know is that my natural mom and my birth mother and my dad got a divorce when I was two, and I went with my dad, not with her, and I really didn't get to know her again. Barely saw her until I was like 15 years old. Wow. So... When I was 15, 16, I started acting again. And he was very, just straight, he had a weird vibe, but I couldn't picture, he wasn't very supportive of it. And uh, later on, I uh, had a talk with my mom. I was in acting school at, in New York, New York University, and I had a talk with my mom, and I was like, my natural mother, why did you guys get a divorce? And she goes, you mean your dad? never told you? And I was like, no. And she goes, well, did you know that I used to be an actor? I was like, no. She goes, I used to do plays in Seattle in the late 60s, experimental theater. Oh my God. I did a play where I, experimental play where I painted, I was topless and painted my torso blue and like (laughs) ran around on the stage and stuff. I was like, really? What? Wow. So Weird. that's the why he was not supportive. There's well, this. it gets better. Oh, the reason they actually got a divorce, she said, is uh, she had an affair with the theater director. Wow, and left my dad for this theater director. Wow. So it all just kind of made sense. Like, first of all, I had no idea that she had been an actress, but I had this kind of like genetic kind of calling in that direction. Fascinating. Oddly enough. Yeah, fascinating. Weird. Um, and then my, it explained my dad's situation too. So it's a... Did you go back and talk to your dad and say, hey, you never told me what was up. Is this a, was that a sore point for you guys when you were, did you have to reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, we've had a fair number of sore points over the years. That's not really been one of them, but um, did kind of talk to him about it. I mean, I would say the good thing about my dad is he... Most people's parents in divorces badmouth the other person. Yeah. He never said a negative thing about her, ever. He That's never scary. said that she had an affair. He never said that she left him. She never said, he never said, you know, negative things about her huge. or anything like yeah. that. So, and she was flabbergasted that he hadn't told me and that yeah. he hadn't told me all this stuff. So that took a lot of integrity, yeah. I think, for him to do that. Yeah. So you were raised in an environment where creativity was supported. Yes. Was it supported overtly? Like, yes, Rain, you should go do this. Like, play the bassoon. There's a little bit of a hiccup there with the being on stage and acting. Yeah. We know we know why now. But is it fair to say that that was a path that was paved for you, or did you have to like, no, I really, I don't want to go to to uh, school for economics. Well, I want to be an artist. Yeah. It. It. 
it wasn't like written that I was going to be an artist, but they were very supportive of an artistic path. So yeah. I was very lucky in that sense. Yep. I think it's really hard for aspiring artists, and I meet them all the time. Uh, I want to be creative. And the parents like, well, do that on the side. Totally. And what's your what's your day job? What's your be? study? Can you, yeah. can you get your accounting degree? And then if you want to do photography at night, you can do that as a hobby. And it's really hard for especially teenagers to be getting that kind of messaging. Yeah. You know, um, and it's just fear on the part of the parents. It's yeah. just fear. As a parent yourself. Yeah. Do you do you share that fear? As you're thinking of Walter is your son's name. I Walter is 14. I have a lot of fears about Walter in this world. Yeah. Um, is there is there a fear around him being an artist? I, that's not where the fear lies for me plenty, at plenty all. Of other things to be afraid of when you have a 14 year old boy. Yeah. There's so. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh my god, it's like the social internet. media <laughs> and the internet and and pornography and and sex and drugs and alcohol and video game yeah. ad screen addiction, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. His yeah. friends are just obsessed with video games and it's, and it's all they talk about. And it's the supreme motivator for yeah. him. So the carrot, the carrot and the stick when raising a 14 year old boy is, is, it's very easy. It's, you know, a chimp could raise a child these days. It's like, you do good, you get some video games. You don't do good, you don't get video games. It's just, it's really that, it's that simple. So we have fears, but, not around that, but you know, I'm in a very privileged position. I've got some money, I've been on a TV show, so um, we don't have to worry about that and I don't have to worry about him making the rent and yeah. all that stuff. Not that he's gonna be like a trust fund kid, but um, in fact, that's a very interesting conversation. Let's do it. I know I'm doing like all the talking. I, this is why you're here because okay. they've, they've heard me for 150 episodes. Okay. Only, this is their first time hearing you. So STFU. And seeing you. And I let, let's, 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 you just go wherever you need to go. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm in for the ride, buckling up. So I'm not trying to brag or anything, but obviously the viewers here, I have a little money because I was on a TV show, whatever, I've done, save some money and whatnot. I'm not like filthy rich, but uh, TV actors do all right. Okay. Yes. So Established. No, no judgment, just, not trying to fact. brag, just like, it's just a fact. So dealing with this fact, and I have this teenage boy, been thinking a lot about like, how do I disperse money to this teenage boy? And it's a really interesting, complicated dialogue to unpack. Do you have any kids? No kids, no plans for kids. I'm, I'm a Funkle, I have a shirt that says, Fun Uncle, the Funkle. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm, that's my role in life, is the okay. Funkle. All right. Active decision. Will you be my son's fun uncle as yes. well? He's, he's, he could use a few more. Happy to do it. All right. Um, so did you guys, you, had, you recorded that part, right? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, like if I was, like it has, of course we're gonna pay for his college and educational needs, whatever. Okay, fine. Sure. But you know, trust funds are kind of, we, I never had a trust fund and that's kind of a scary landscape because yeah. if I was in New York City in the early 90s trying to make it as an actor, trying to get an agent, trying to hustle jobs, trying to build my resume, trying to get experience, and my parents paid for my apartment or gave me 1000 a month or gave me 2000 a month or gave me 4000 a month or whatever, or I had just this interest yeah, thing, <laughs> like it would have absolutely demotivated me. And I, I never would have made it as an actor if I had had financial help. 
because the motivator for me was I had a fire under my ass yeah. to pay the next month's rent because I was month to month, baby. Yeah. I was an actor for nine years in New York City doing theater. I never made as an actor over $20,000 in a year for the first nine years of my career. Wow. Um, wow. That is, a, that is a stone cold Steve Austin fact. Wow. Um, but if I had that money coming in, I don't know that I would have. Yeah. I don't know that I would have done anything. I mean, maybe I would have. I like to think in some ways that I would have, but my motivation was like, make the next month's rent and, uh, and build uh, my resume and get hustle and get that next job so I don't have to wait tables and I don't have to be a guy with a moving van and I don't have to cater events. And I can just like... Yeah be an actor and it gave me that drive um, and determination that is so important for creative types, the yeah. people that you serve. For sure. And that's the thing, like trying to navigate, to me that's the most uh, important and untalked about, not the most, but one of the most important and untalked about things is how do you survive, sustain what it is that you're trying to do, not get distracted because if you want to achieve the, you don't just stumble into the life that you have right now. And I think a lot of people, rather they, whether they want to be on you know, a hit television show or write novels or whatever, it's, I think it's understood enough, certainly from the arc of this show, that that just doesn't happen. The, the amount of effort, like you're the 150th person who sat here and said, nine years, like I had to like, you know, pound, pound my head against the, the brick wall for nine years in order to make it. So given that, why isn't there a support system to help people navigate like I personally, my, my segue was waiting tables. Yeah. I waited tables on the side because you don't have to work very long hours. You make pretty good money. It's highly flexible. So if I got a job as a photographer, I could say, get someone else to cover my shift. Sure. And you, it sounds like you didn't want to, you, so how did you, what was your bridge? Did you do like well, I, jobs? Well, I, I had a friend who said recently that there's, you know, the A job and the B job. So everyone's yeah. going for their A job. Maybe this is, I had never heard this before. No, this is I'm new. an old fogey. So there's your A job. That's what you really want. Okay. And it's the B job that you're going to do that's going to enable you to get that A job. I like it. And that there's no shame in having that B job. Yeah. And a lot of people like feel like if I get that B job, I will never get the A job. It's a, it's a false dichotomy yeah. in a way. But yes. So for you, what was, what was your B job? Mainly, I, I waited tables as okay. well. I got married and <laughs> to, my, to my wife and we, got, we asked for money and maybe we got like $3,000 or something like grand total in, in wedding money. We were dirt broke living out in Brooklyn and I took $1,200 of that and I bought a van. And I was a man with a van. I had a moving service called the Transcendent Moving Company. Trans you were transcendent even then? Even then, I had a kind of a mystical bent to my work. And I would, in New York City back then, I don't know what it's like these days. I didn't have any insurance, anything like that. I just, I would put up flyers with tearaway little numbers in yeah. laundromats and on the telephone poles in New York City. Man, and people would call me and I would charge 30 bucks an hour to whatever. help them move whatever. And if it was two guys, it was 50 bucks an hour and I would just hire a friend. And I would line up, it was, I had just, I didn't even have a cell phone, I had voicemail, but I would line up like Saturday, I'd move someone from nine to one and then someone from two to six and then Sunday this, and it was, it was off the books. Yep. I didn't pay taxes on it. 
you should actually pay taxes on that money now that I'm saying this out loud in the podcast <laughs> with hundreds of thousands of listeners. Um, so, uh, um, and it was great. It was so flexible, like yeah. you said. Yeah. It just, it was, it was super easy. And whenever I wanted to, I could go make two, 300 bucks. Yeah. And uh, it worked out. It worked out. It worked out great for me. Feels like we need a uh, we need a world where we like tell people that that's a thing and that it's okay and that that's the, the A and B job. Yeah. Like, why don't we like let's cement that? That's, yeah. All right. That's that's put it on your big to do list. Website just, creative yeah. live. Yeah. Done. Bullshit. Check. Whatever that is. We're gonna do it. The um, um, the other thing I always say to young artists, and it's hard these days, like in New York City, because basically the the salaries are essentially the same. And the rents are 10 times yeah. what they used to be when I lived there. Crazy. I, I remember renting a room for $500 a month, you know? So I could, you know. You can't get a parking space for 500 a month. You really can't. In Brooklyn, so, not even but alone. But for theater actors, it, it's so tough. But I would always say to kids, you know, keep your overhead low. Yeah. And I think that is a big mistake. And I think it's, it's people make fun of millennials a lot for it. You know, the avocado toast, you know, that they're, they're making minimum wage at Starbucks, but they'll go out and $12 have the avocado $12 avocado toast and their $6 it was latte. Literally on, we're at the Ace in LA and it was literally on the menu this morning. I was like, yeah, 12 bucks for, I think it was 16 actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so damn good. It's so How good. How did avocado toast not exist up until like two years ago? <laughs> I was just in the Whole Foods this morning and they had one with like egg on it and like <laughs> it's a cumin thing, and sure. like, I was like, oh, that looks so delicious. But, but, yeah, sorry, but you're if saying you're making yeah. eight fifty an hour, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of a waste of your, <laughs> you want to work for an hour and a half in order to have an avocado <laughs> toast. Well, so you, keeping your overhead low is a super important thing for artists and creative types yep. uh, to do. It will keep you hungry, it keep you lean, keep your costs down. Um, and, and so you can focus everything on, on what your creative dream is. How are you going to do that with Walter? Ooh, there we go. Someone dropped some dishes in the kitchen. Yeah. You guys, <laughs> We're in downtown Los Angeles. This is all part of the texture of the show. Um, how am I going to do that with Walter? I have no idea. I have no idea. There should be a class for that too, right? You know, someone said, and it's very true, uh, my the friends are, are pregnant and they're taking their uh, birthing class, you know, and you do these really intensive birthing classes when you have kids, like, this is what's happening in the pregnancy. And when you go to the hospital, there's what to put in your to-go bag. And here's different w options of how to have the kid and stuff. But you don't take the classes on the actual parenting. <laughs> right. So then you come home from the hospital, you got this little thing with <laughs> legs and a penis and a, and a pooper. And you're like, what the hell do I do with this thing? I, I know how to carry it. I know how to swaddle it. Yes. But I know nothing else. <laughs> I know nothing else. I, I, but I know how it came out. And I know how all that pregnancy worked and the birth worked because I took those three months of classes on that but I had no idea what to do This now. is why I'm an uncle, right? Yeah. Exactly what you just described there. Yeah, yeah. So you get some work to do so to figure I, that yeah, out. So as raising a teenage boy in uh, today's environment is uh, extremely challenging. My wife and I talk about it a lot. Um, we consult, we read about it. Um, uh, and uh, I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's... It, it's a super interesting challenge. I, I don't know how people with multiple kids do it, by the way. We have one kid, one 14 year old, and it, he kind of, we're pretty flummoxed. <laughs> There's people with five kids. I'm like, what? Yeah, they're outnumbered. So obviously you've, you've already mentioned very clearly that you've been successful as an actor on hit show, The Office. Um, Dwight is a character. 
the character that you play in that show is so radically different. And this is, it's called acting, right? So mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not really a surprise. But I just wondered if you could start to reconcile because, you know, one of the things that I want to lead into here in the show is um, the work that you do with nonprofits. I was really, I mean, I've been a fan a long time. We have the Seattle connection. We probably know a handful of the same people. I love what you're doing with, with Lee Day, with some of the nonprofits, with Soul Pancake. Um, and Dwight, like, connect the dots for people. You, you are this comedian, and most of the comedians that I know, and I know enough, they don't have a, a, this, this um, a really strong give back sense. There's not a lot of other, they're very, I see comedians and actors very focused on comedy and acting. Yeah, it's very insular. Yeah, it's, and they it have seems their little like, improv troupe and they have their stand up stages yeah, that go you, on and their little have, cluster of friends. You have, you have um, yeah. done so much outside the industry. And to me, that's, that strikes me as, I, the way I talk about it is we're all hyphens. There's so many different things. We used to just be an actor or we used to be a writer or we used to be an architect. And now we're many things. Is that what motivates you to be many things? Or is there, you know, I know faith is a part of it for you. Like, give me a, just a little bit of a... Yeah, there's a lot of that. Faith, faith has narrative. something to do with that. I'll mention a little bit about that. I'll, I'll, and I'll mention that one, thing's I'm real, one of the things I'm super grateful for mm -hmm. is that in my training as an actor at NYU... Uh, graduate acting program and in the directors that I worked with and early on in my theater career. We were always spoken to as and treated as artists. So they always kind of drilled this into you. Like you're not just an actor, you're an artist. What does an artist do? Well, an artist, ultimately, and all artists tell a story. All artists attempt to make something true and beautiful, whatever the medium, that artists are in charge of their creative faculty and they have choice in the matter. There's often a feeling about actors like, oh, actors wait for the phone to ring, they audition, maybe they get a job, maybe they don't, and they just kind of go where the winds take them. So I was very fortunate to have some great teachers and mentors early on that kind of helped give me agency yeah. to kind of think of myself Huge. as a, a proactive um, actor in my career, uh, yeah. uh, that I was able to make these choices. And I was always as an actor, yes, I would audition and try and get roles and sometimes I'd get good ones and sometimes I'd get bad ones and sometimes I wouldn't get any roles for a year. But I was always trying to generate my own work and I was always trying to work with people on things and I was, trying to, I would, I would always teach as I was an actor. I would go in the inner city schools in New York and do teaching. I would teach theater games and improvisation and clowning and comedy. And um, so I was very lucky to be trained to have kind of a broader view of myself yeah. than just an actor or just a comedy actor. Yeah. And it always is very surprising to me when I meet actors that have such a narrow sense of themselves yeah. and who they are. Um, so that's, that's part of it. When I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith. Um, from early, early. From early, early. My okay. parents were Baha'is. Okay. These strange Bohemians, you know, my dad working at the sewer company and painting abstract oil paintings and writing science fiction that's novels. Amazing. Was also a member of the Baha'i faith, as if things couldn't get any weirder. Um, 
And it was, you know, during the time in the late 60s and early 70s that a lot of kids these days really forget. It was a very fertile time for spirituality. People were exploring spirituality, yeah. you know? Cat Stevens became a Muslim and the Beatles went to India and yeah. people were doing, practicing meditation and, and yoga and reading the Bhagavad Gita and searching for some meaning and truth in their life beyond just the material at the time. And that saturated the arts uh, during that time period. So my parents became Baha'is during that time. There's a lot of people became members of the Baha'i faith. At the same time, a lot of people became members of a lot of different, um, what I would say, like alternative religions, even though it's not really what it is. So in the Baha'i faith, uh, so I grew up Baha'i. I left it for a long time. Um, just this teenage sort of journey, yeah. your own journey, and then come exactly. Back to it. Yeah, when I was 20, 21, living in New York City, I just didn't want anything to do with religion anymore. I think it's a pretty common journey. Yeah, I didn't want the faith of my parents. I didn't know if there was a god. <coughs> um, I didn't know if there was. I didn't want morality in my life. I didn't want to think That's about too that complicated, stuff. Right? Yeah, I just I wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a bohemian and an artist. So I just jettisoned all that. And I really, um, uh, I, you know, I, I talk about this in my book a little bit. I went on a spiritual journey during that time. I was, uh, uh, well, I'll tell you, I became, uh, I, I started living, I started making a living as an actor, mostly. I had a incredible- 20,000 20, a year. Making my 20,000 a year. <laughs> Uh, but I was working. Yeah. I was getting, hey. that's beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, yeah. yes, my dad published one book and he painted these paintings, but I didn't know anyone that made any money as an artist. Yeah. So from suburban Seattle, it's pretty rare. Yeah. So uh, it was pretty fantastic. But at the same time, I found myself to be really unhappy and unsatisfied in my life. Mm. So kind of in my late 20s, early 30s, I really went on a spiritual journey, kind of like trying to see, you know, am I missing something here? Is, uh, did I jettison, did I throw the baby out with the bathwater when I jettisoned all of yeah. religion and spirituality early on? And long story short, um, I came back to the faith of my childhood. I, I found great truth and beauty and meaning in the Baha'i faith. I believed that it was true. Um, I had a kind of like personal kind of conversion, that act of faith. But one of the things that one of the main teachings, not one of the main, one of the minor teachings of the okay. Baha'i faith, but one that resonates with me is the idea that art is worship. That we can, people think of like worship. What do you think of worship? You think of getting on your knees or holding your hands like this and saying, Oh God, you're so awesome, God, you're the best. Give me a hand here, would you, bro? Yeah, or help me out, exactly, or help me out, or, or saying certain prayers or songs or yeah. things that have been pre-written or whatever. And, and so these, there are these writings in the Baha'i faith about the making of art is the same as, as worship, that it's a divine act, it's a mm. sacred act. And when you think about it, it's really profound because let's just assume for a second it's probably majority agnostic out there listening right now, probably a good quarter atheist. But let's just 
let's not get into that whole debate right now, but let's just assume there's a, let's say there's some kind of creator force out there. Like, and what better uh, way of worshiping this creator who had the ultimate blank canvas, the universe, and for five billion years ago had this little speck that became the Big Bang and became all these galaxies and molecules and elements and time and matter and energy. And um, what better kind of testimony, testament and ode to this creator than to take your own blank canvas and create something on it. Yep. That God is the creator and then we as artists are the creator. Also, when you make stuff like art, it's a service, you know? I, I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that come up every week and are like, I love the office so much. My sister was dying of cancer in the hospital. We would gather on our hospital bed. We would watch the office and we would laugh and we would cry together. Thank you. And just people like well, I was going through a divorce and I would watch the office with my kids and it was me so meaningful or it's, you know, my family would bring together like, I'm not, it's just a silly comedy or whatever. I don't want to sound too no, pompous but or self-important. No, but. no, the art has like, the goal of art is impact, right? And in yeah. comedy is to make people laugh. Make people laugh, take their troubles away, you know, touch their heart in a way. The, the, I think the reason the office lasts so much is it has so much heart. Yeah. You oh, know, it's, it's not just, just yeah. about getting those laughs. It's yeah. falling in love with these characters and characters connecting and yeah. failing to connect. And there's something really beautiful and universally oh. human about those stories. I didn't so, know that, that, so that's a tenet of the Baha'i faith is that creativity is sort of an act of worship or reverence yes. because you're probably the closest thing that we could come to the creator. The son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, the founder is named Baha'u'llah, and he lived in Iran, Persia, in the mid-1800s. Um, his son, was, and that name means the glory of God, Baha'u'llah, his son was called Abdul Baha, and that title meant servant of glory. So Abdu'l-Bahá was a very wise man that uh, Baha'is read a lot of his writings. And he actually came to America and toured around America in the early 20th century. But Abdu'l-Bahá um, said in a letter to a young artist, he said, I rejoice to hear that thou hast taken pains with thy art. For in this most wondrous age, um, art is synonymous with prayer. That is to say, when you put your paintbrush on the paper, it is as twere you were kneeling in the temple. It's the same act. Wow. So I, I, I love that. Um, I, I love that idea. I love the idea of the, the ancient sacredness of the creation of art. Going back to the caveman days, yeah. to the artist as shaman, you know, to those first cave paintings of little deer and elk and antelope and bear and the human hand that's sketched on the wall of the cave. Um, and how art and the sacred and the artistic has always been linked throughout human history. Um, and for me, great art, witnessing it, experiencing it, is, is kind of the closest thing I get to a religious experience. When I see Radiohead live in concert, yeah. To me, that's more meaningful than any pilgrimage or going to any church or, or, or worship service. Yeah, wow. So if, by extension then, do you 
attend, like, is art a big part of your day-to-day life? Like you mentioned, going to Radiohead is consuming art. Obviously, you've been creating art, written, music, uh, theater, television. You're doing your part there. But is consuming it a part of your day-to-day as well? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I I think these days we're lucky because there's so much great television, and television yeah. is, yeah. is oh, man. incredible it's work of art. Yeah, been watching this show on Netflix, Babylon Berlin. It's this uh, German show during the Weimar Republic, and it's it's kind of an adventure show, but it's it's so beautifully done. Yeah. It's it's a really exquisite work of art. But yeah, it's I love contemporary art. I love going to museums. I listen to music all the time. I, I really love uh, I really love great music. And um, you know, the, and, the the takeaway for me, and what I'll I'll just try and frame it please. for for the folks at home that. This is a really common theme on the show is that the folks who, that, that people draw inspiration from areas beyond their area of focus. So, uh-huh. you know, you've been an actor since your teens. You talked about that. Mm-hmm. Plays on television, movies, etc. But you just talked about the breadth of expression that you try and tap into and your inspiration across half a dozen different disciplines. That is a strong, strong theme. People who are, and the same was true for me, uh, photography, I was motivated and inspired by Warhol and Rauschenberg and the, the artists from the 60s, 70s, 80s in New York because they were sort of reinventing the game of art mm. while they were making it, you mm. know, taking art out of the streets. If you're Basquiat, out of the, you know, the streets and into the galleries, or if you're Warhol, out of the out of the uh, supermarket shelves and into into museums with you know the Brillo boxes. I was really motivated by that, and I tried to do that in photography, and that's been a really consistent theme here. Is there any area besides acting that you feel like played the largest role in inspiring you as an actor? What you know, was it music specifically because you know your bassoonism, <laughs> um, <laughs> or was it was it? Uh... Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know about that, but I think. I was such a nerd. I have, I still have my science fiction and fantasy book collection from the 1970s, which is like three or 400 books that I all read before I was like 16 years old. Asimov, Bradbury. Oh yeah, all all, all that. Henlon and, you know, uh, all all the greats. And um, uh, that's in, in the back of my mind, that's my kind of secret other profession is like, kind of can't wait to the point when I'm like, you know what? Enough of this acting BS. I'm so tired of it. I'm pulling the plug on all this and I just want to go hole up and write a bunch of really nerdy science fiction books and just have this other career and just not have to deal with people and just kind of live and just like my dad at his little typewriter and uh, create those little worlds. So cool. Maybe someday that's where I'll be. All right. Um, I want to go to, this is about a, a biggest leap that we'll make in the show today. Go from your faith to Soul Pancake, which is a tech yeah. me- media company yep. that you're mm-hmm. a co-founder of. Yeah. But there's a thread there, right? Isn't, isn't it true that there's a thread? Soul Pancake, that was one of the things when I, I feel like, was it 2010 maybe when that thing started? The, yes, like yeah. That, right around good, there? Good memory. Yep. It, 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 it's, it came on the scene really quickly. It struck me a, a bunch of great videos. I remember videos with Kid President and videos with starring yourself, just asking the big questions in yep. life and doing so in a playful way online, early YouTube stuff. So there's this media component to it, but I can still sense, especially now that we're unpacking your, your history, 
what's the thread there? Because it seemed for for maybe someone who didn't know, it was like it's Dwight from the office, and he's got a tech company. Yeah, how, yeah. How, how connect the thread there? Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, how do I unpack that? It gets a little complicated. I think. Um, when we started founding Soul Pancake, it started as a website. So it was kind of a tech company early on because we wanted to make it almost a social media type of portal for people to interact. Yep. There was content, but the content was backseat to people creating you know, their membership and interacting with each other on the site. It, it swiftly, uh, that didn't really work. Yep. Um, content worked though, didn't it? The content worked, and especially the video content that we were making is what really took off. So yeah. we, we had a kind of come to Jesus moment, a come to Baha'u'llah moment. <laughs> and we kind of sat around and we we're like, okay, lots of this is not working. Some stuff is working. What do we do here? And we had one of those great tech pivot moments where it's like, we've got this website and we're getting a whopping $100,000 people a month coming to it. It's not enough to make any money off of. Um, people are really engaged with it. But the video content that we make spikes. Yeah. People love it. They replay it. They buy the rights to it. They're playing it on their shows. Oprah wanted a bunch for her launch of her Oprah Winfrey network. Like, we need to we need to transition. Yeah. This is seems to be where the need is. The need is for uplifting content. Yeah. For content that is rich and human and meaningful and challenging and deals with life's big questions and connection and and no one was doing it at that yeah. time there wasn't an upworthy there weren't there weren't a lot of other a plus ashton kutcher's company a lot of those ones weren't in existence at the time we yeah. were kind of the yeah you were definitely seminal that was very yeah, early it was and so we kind of transitioned from okay exploring life's big questions to making uh meaningful uplifting content um as almost a service. So we were a mission-driven company. So we were a for-profit company. We wanted to make money at this, but we had a mission um, and a, a, how do you say, a brand, yeah. you know, to uh, make uplifting, enriching content. And how does this connect to me? You know, I guess I, as a Baha'i, um, uh, Baha'is believe in doing service and giving back and trying to do good in the world. Lots of other religious faiths do, and a lot of atheists too yep. do as well, by the way. So it's all good. Um, anyone that wants to make a positive difference in the world, amen. We could have made a lot more money just being a video production company and doing whatever the hell we wanted to do. But we really stuck to our mission and our brand about Soul Pancake is uplifting, connecting, inspiring content. We make stuff that matters, what became our tagline, ultimately. Um, so it went from Chew on Life's Big Questions to we make stuff that matters. Um, and this had to do with just me as a person. I, I had this opportunity. All of a sudden I was Dwight. You know, our show almost got canceled a whole bunch of times. And then we're halfway through our second season and all of a sudden we're hit and like, oh my God, I'm going to be on this show for six, seven, eight, nine years. I know where my, this is the guy who was making $20,000 a year. Like all of a sudden, like I'm making more than that a week, you know? And, uh, 
So I saw this opportunity. I have an opportunity to have an, I have a name to do something positive in the world. How do I want to do that? Well, at the time, the web in 2009, 2010 was a really foul smelling place. It's a much more interesting place now, still dangerous, but uh, it was all like Kardashians and credit scores and fails and credit scores, (laughs) you know, it was just kind of the worst of humanity, just kind of porn, pornification of the internet. And so I saw an opportunity to let's do something positive on the web. And it also came from my faith tradition, which teaches that the most important thing that we can do as human beings is explore the truth for ourselves. So that's one of the central teachings of the Baha'i faith is that it's called the individual investigation of truth, that we have an obligation, all of us, to try and find what is true in this, in this wow. short time that we're spinning around the sun, you know? Wow. I, it always puts it in perspective whenever I hear someone share like, oh, you get X many breaths in your life, or you get X many heartbeats. You know, I view it as like this body is on lease, you know? I've, I've leased my, my car, you know, I'm, I'm two and a half years into a three year <laughs> lease, I'm gonna have to think about leasing another car. This body, I'm 52 years into a 96 year lease, I'm being optimistic. Yes. Like so. That. What, um, what is that, uh, what is, what do I do, you know, during that time, but search for what is true and meaningful in this world. So I wanted Soul Pancake to be a portal for that, for young people to search for the truth. It has nothing to do with the Baha'i faith per se, and uh, if you look at it, but inspired by that yeah. teaching of the individual investigation of truth, can we find can we put all our resources into finding what is true and what is beautiful in this life? Extra pertinent today with yeah. the truth layer in there. But I like that it's an individual exploration and, and this is really helpful because you can now look back at your career and there's a lot of exploration, exploring with different uh, media, or mediums, media and art. Um, I think this, the tech thing, is that basically trying to scale this idea of search for truth Right. Yep. So, you know, you get millions of people. I, I you know, I've seen videos all over the internet, especially early on. It was very inspiring to me. Like, oh my God, this is like positive content in a sea of, yeah. of <laughs> not, not so positive stuff. Uh, it's an easy transition here. Let's talk about uh, Lide. Yeah. Because they seem, again, this is your, your thread now, it makes perfect sense to me grounded in your faith, your journey seeking truth and trying to provide avenues and vehicles for other people to do the same. I was very moved by the little video that you made with your wife about how you, um, well, I'll let, I'll let you introduce it, yeah. but in, in short, my intro would be that it's um, helping uh, girls and women in rural Haiti mm-hmm. express themselves and empower them through arts and creativity. But yeah. How'd I do? Exactly, exactly right. So as I started getting well-known for Dwight, another thing happened besides Soul Pancake, which is I started getting approached by all these nonprofits like, Hey, do, hey, a, <laughs> do a thing. Can we have some money? <laughs> will you be on our board? Will you do a fundraiser? Make will a video. You, yeah. yeah. Will you make a video for us? Will you travel with us? Will you, you know, because, and that makes sense. So, but I, it was very like, oh, oh shit, what the hell do I do? And... So I started kind of researching the kind of work that I wanted to do. And I decided that 
education was uh, for me. Because I think education is, um, is key. I mean, anything you want to change, you can change through education. And in fact, it's usually better to change it through education. Like, if you want clean water in the world, yeah, you can go build wells. It's great. You can go around and build wells. That's great. What about teaching people to build wells? What about educating them on the virtues of clean water, clean on the virtues of clean water, on health aspects of clean water and how to get their own clean water, how to how to best utilize their water, how to not waste water, how to, you know, how the science of water. You're going to have a way bigger impact uh, with what you want to give a fish. Teach it. Exactly. And that and that and that goes across the board. So. I joined the board of this uh, foundation called the Mona Foundation that gives grants to schools all around the world. Seattle company. Uh, Seattle-based. Seattle yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, we're having a big thing in Seattle, May 30th. I hope you can come if you're in town. I'd uh, love to have you there. May 30th, I'll do it. Um, and can I uh, give some money? It's a Rain Wilson and Friends. We're having uh, Joel McHale's going to be there and uh, Chris Ballou from uh, oh, love Presidents of the United Chris States Blade. of America. Oh, yeah. Chris. Yeah, Chris so is making Seattleites. a song for my nephew. Oh, nice! Specifically, like with his name and the thing, and the and we bought that at an auction. Chris is a longtime friend. Okay, well, yeah, this, yeah, is, right this is happening. This is so happening. that that's at the Paramount Theater. Amazing. Um, and we took a trip to Haiti because Mona Foundation supported about four or five schools in Haiti. And my wife and I just fell in love with the country, the culture, the beauty of it, uh, the the music, the art, the people, the language. It's like this strange little chunk of Africa, like cut off and just put in the middle of the Caribbean. It's a very different culture than any place else you go in the Caribbean. Um, And uh, of course, because it was the first free slave nation. So the slaves overthrew their French masters in in 1804 and became the the second independent republic in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti was. Um, And uh, boy, the... People did not like that. They did not like uh, the slaves having overthrown uh, and created their own kind of powerful state. You know, uh, it was a very wealthy country back in the time in the day. And um, so, two months later, was the earthquake. The hotel we were staying at, called the Montana, was obliterated. Fell down the side of the hill. Everyone inside of it was killed. 300,000 people died in a matter of minutes. And the devastation, as we all remember, was just off the charts, like nothing you've ever seen before. So my wife and I, again, were like, oh man, we really have to do something. So a couple uh, weeks later, there were, we found out about a group that was sponsored by the UN that was going to teach arts to adolescent girls in in a tent city. There was the tent camp at JPHRO, which was Sean Penn's uh, amazing charity in Haiti. And so we stayed in tents in the back of Sean Penn's house in his muddy yard. And we spent two weeks teaching drama, photography, creative writing um, to these teenage girls that were living in tents. And we saw the incredible positive effects that it had. It created community among the girls. it allowed them to find their voice. We weren't training them to be professional artists. We were training them. We were giving them inspiration. And it's very powerful. That is yeah. like, the, the, like I remember, like, these people need water and homes and roofs. And then, you know, as I watched the first 10 seconds of the video you made, 
you you hit that head on. You're like, well, wait a minute, don't these girls need yeah. places to sleep and places? And I think you threw a threw a story through one of the girls. He's like, no, what we need is we need hope. Yeah. And this creativity gives us this inspiration that is as important as some of these yeah. fa- fa- fundamentals. Yeah. Hope so is powerful. maybe even more important than yeah. shoes. Hopefully we'd like to give them hope and shoes. With shoes but, and water. <laughs> and water. But yeah, so it was an incredibly powerful experience. And together with this woman, we worked with an incredible woman, Dr. Catherine Adams, who's an educator, creative writer, psychologist. She's a professor. She was willing to leave literally her house on the beach in Malibu and move to Haiti to do the work. And we were like, okay, well, if she's willing to do that, then we've got to support this and we've got to make this happen. So we spent several years researching, consulting with other nonprofits. Uh, We have a, a number of... The nonprofit world is a crazy, crazy world. It is so difficult. There are so many landmines. There's so many mistakes. I really feel like there should be, maybe I need to write something about like how to, how to navigate this nonprofit world because yeah. it is cuckoo yeah. banana town. Yeah. And uh, we learned a ton and we work in rural Haiti because A, in Haiti, all the nonprofits work in Port-au-Prince. Yeah. Conveniently located by the airport with lots of four-star restaurants. So we work we work at places so remote, most Haitians don't know where they are. Wow. Um, we quickly added literacy because that's what all the girls and their parents said that they needed. Like these girls, yeah, you want to teach them photography? They don't know how to read, bro. Yeah. So it was like, oh, yeah, I guess we better. Let's go to first principle. Here. Yeah, yeah, let's exactly. Let's slow things down. So we really want to serve the needs of the community. Then these girls were falling behind in school, so we added tutoring to it. They needed scholarships to school. Haiti has the most percentage of kids in private schools in the world. Wow. Because there are so few publicly funded schools that wow. are functioning. Yeah. So they need scholarships, they need clothing, uniforms, books, materials. We provide that. Um, we have a mobile computer lab. Uh, I was saying before the interview, most yeah. girls, most kids in Haiti, when they take a computer course, they get a little computer workbook and it's all in pencil, and you fill in like short keyboard shortcuts. If you wanna take a screenshot, hit Control-Alt-4, and like that's written and they with never, a pencil. With a pencil, and they never touch. A pencil that they have to provide, the school doesn't provide, so, um, they never touch a computer. So we have these incredible footage of, and it's incredible when I get to go there, and these girls, they just, their faces lighten up seeing a computer and just, learning how to make a spreadsheet or how to make a Word document and how to do, use Google Translate or create a resume and how to connect it to the internet and, and whatnot. It's, that's where miracles happen, yeah. you know? Because these girls are basically farm girls. They're basically subsistent farmers. Wow. That's what their families are. So we're trying to, and most of them are gonna continue doing yeah. that, but they're gonna teach their kids. You know, here's the thing, why girls? People say, why girls, not boys? When you educate a girl, you're educating 25 people. Their kids, girls spread what they learn. Their, their sisters, their cousins, their moms, their community. Wow. But boys don't do that. Obvious, yeah. You know, I always say, like, you educate a boy, he'll, he'll move into town and become an Uber driver. You know, you educate a girl, she spreads it. So 
it's been a it's been an incredible it's been an incredible experience. And basically, what I do is I whore myself out as Dwight, and I do these Dwight and T-shirts themed and- <laughs> fundraisers with Dwight T-shirts and Dwight BS, and you know, and I do online things and raffles and stuff like that. Last year, I did a thing where we toured office sites in the valley with a raffle winner made a good chunk of money and I just take all that money and shovel it over to some of the poorest people in the world. So it feels great to be able to give back in that way. Amazing. Wow. I think that that's a, let me, I'm going to ask one, one more question to try and unpack this. What is that? Why you do what you do today is, is, is that your, your next focus is to give back? Or do you have other acting aspirations? And if so, does that, is there a personal component to that fulfillment? Or is it all to try and empower and others? Is there a split? Like all you, all them, some sort of a split? Well, you're, you're taking care it's interesting. Of I was listening to your podcast a bunch and just kind of preparing for this. And congratulations on it. It's a really, really terrific one. It really is one of the best ones out there. Thank and you I love the wide ranging guests that you have and the way that you approach the topics that you approach. But Thank you. podcasts like yours and several others often posit the wrong question at the center of the dialogue. And the question is often for people, how can I be happy? How can I be successful? Or how can I be more happy and more successful? And I think that's completely understandable questions, but those are the wrong questions. Because it's how can I find meaning and purpose? If I find meaning and purpose, I will be happy and I will be successful. So it's, it's a shifting of perspective, you know? I don't know that that's it. I wouldn't like write, Rain Wilson writes the book, meaning and purpose or something like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not Seth Godin or Brene Brown. I'm not like an expert in this stuff. But I do think you have to frame it in the right way. Because yeah. if you're pursuing happiness, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. If you're happiness pursuing connection, meaning, and tapping into your passion, yeah. you'll find happiness as a byproduct of that. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, I know you've, you've learned this in your, in your many conversations. So, but I think young people have to kind of shift their perspective, their shift their thinking. I was saying the other day that I read this incredible story about in the late 70s, there were these best-selling albums on whale songs. Do you remember this at all? I don't. You might have been a little too young. It was literally a top 10 album, and it had whale songs. And literally like the ooh, yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And that launched the whole ecological movement of Save the Whales. And all these whales were almost extinct at that point. And they've come back. Now, they might go extinct again with global warming and the acidification of the oceans or whatnot. But it was the songs that shifted people's perspective that they said, oh, wow, these creatures are making beautiful music and communicating with each other across hundreds of miles. They're so special and they're so beautiful. We have to save them. We have to save them. So it didn't come from like, hey, whales are dying. We got to save them. It came from art. It came from that the beauty of their songs that ignited people to, to save these, to save the whales, which was it really got made fun of a lot, but it did a lot of good at the time. So it, shifting that perspective is, is, is super important. So, you know, you're, 
Long, long-winded. I'm so long-winded today. I'm oh, I love it. I I lo- no, the, the reason they're long-form podcasts is so that we can be long-winded. This is okay, not, okay. This is exactly. It's perfect. I'm a windbag. It's, no, Let's the folks it. at home they want. They want uh, to hear this. The uh, so you ask like, what's up for me? What's yeah. next for me? Like, yeah. if I want to focus on where my passion is, where meaning is, where connection is. Um, then things unfold in a really natural way for me. For me, that has to do with God. It has to do with sinking my will with the kind of the, the will and the flow of the universe. I'm sorry to sound like a hippie, no, that's but that's how it works for me. Other people may not quite work that way, but if you, I want to make myself a better person because uh, I've still got a lot of work to do on myself and I want to try and make the world a better place and impact the world. I want to do both of those things. And that's a very Baha'i concept to be working on both of those things at the same time. So what am I doing? I'm, I'm producing and directing some new projects. Um, I've been writing some stuff. Um, uh, it looks like I'm going to be doing a new TV show, which I can't talk about yet because we're still oh, negotiating. Damn, sorry, just a sorry. Early. I'll let you know. Okay. If it if it happens, you'll be the first person I yes. call. Yes. You can announce it. Um, and uh, I'm I'm you know I'm starting to write a, a another book, and um, and we're trying to expand Lide Haiti in some interesting new and 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 cool ways. So, um, but again, it's following that path of kind of meaning, purpose, and connection, and uh, then things, things, things seem to work out. I'm grateful for the time. You're incredibly inspiring, and this whole windbag thing, don't, like, if I could handcuff you to the chair here and get you for another <laughs> 90 minutes, I would. Um, so grateful. I, I, people would kill me, though, if I didn't ask what in the hell is going on with the office? We see these teasers. <laughs> we see these teasers, and I know how passionate. Like we already talked about the the how much joy you've brought. However many seasons, a hundred seasons. I don't know, nine or ten. Or, nine, nine seasons, two hundred yeah. episodes. Yeah, uh, like an office reunion type of thing. You yeah, mean? No, like, yeah, it's just. Yeah, I mean, I'd be up for that. It gets very tricky, you know. It's first for sure, of all, it would all need to come another. through this guy named Greg Daniels, who is the. Uh, founder of the American office, and he's our fearless leader. He is one of the kindest, most brilliant, funniest, perceptive human beings on the planet. And we're all so loyal to Greg. So it's like, Greg, what do you want to do? We'll follow whatever Greg wants to do. And we're not going to do it without Greg. We need Greg, so it's up to Greg. So don't talk to me. Talk to I Greg. I'll Daniels. find Greg. Greg, you're on um, Greg, I'm coming for you. I don't think Steve would do it, because yeah. I think Steve, you know, really played out his term on the office and yeah. he's going in different directions and stuff like that. I don't think John would do it because he's, he's a so, warrior now, a he's, superhero. Yeah, he's a superhero warrior and <laughs> the A-list video you director. made on your, on your Instagram when you were talking like, God, just thinking about my cast oh. and crew and in the background, <laughs> in the background was this uh, uh, video John, on billboard. John, Clancy. <laughs> John in a Tom Clancy book. <laughs> That was great. I, and and Jenna's on another TV show on ABC. So, I mean, she's contractually yeah. locked up over sure. there. So Everyone's busy. I get it. It'd be tricky, but, you know, uh, maybe there would be an office movie. That would be fun. That would be super fun. Like a two-hour, like, road trip office movie. Like, that's my pitch. Or, a, <laughs> or a, a Christmas series of episodes or something like that. We always do really well with Halloween and Christmas. So maybe something that... Uh, an office holiday oh, special or something oh, God, like that. Or, so good. Um, 
I don't know what it means, but I'm I'm definitely I'm game. Yeah. But uh, I'm waiting for my phone to ring, and it has not rung. Okay, so. I'm tapping my fingers, Greg. This is I'm coming for you. Uh, just because that was a, a, an important part of your career, um, it it's so inspiring to see that 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 base has created so much that you've created so much from it. Books, music. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, man. Uh, super inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'll do the thing on the May thirtieth. Sign me up if you and Chris Bullo are in the same room. Like I'm happy to Great. do anything to be there. Uh, thanks for being on the show. It means a lot. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank thanks you. Another 1960s yeah. handshake too. Yes. Yes. Hello. It was excellent. Signing off until next time. Appreciate you guys watching. Thanks a lot. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye <laughs>